I'm Daniel Libet. This is the NM Fishbowl Podcast. Tuesday, October 2nd, 2018. In the statewide commotion last month following the University of New Mexico's decision to terminate several of its Olympic sports programs, including its perennially ranked men's soccer team, there was no shortage of political grandstanding and moral melodrama. But amidst all the warring diatribes, all the schmaltzy rhetoric about soccer's sacred place in New Mexico, the most persuasive and sane argument against the sports cuts came from my guest in today's episode of the NM Fishbowl podcast. Andy Schwartz is an antitrust economist who has become one of the leading national experts in and critics of the ways college athletic departments do math and bullshit about fairness. Schwartz has been a consultant in some of the most important pro-athlete reform litigation in college sports history, including White v. NCAA, O'Bannon v. NCAA, and the ongoing Alston v. NCAA. In 2015, Schwartz was hired by the University of Alabama, Birmingham, to review the financial basis of its decision to drop football, a decision it later reversed. In late August, Schwartz decided to do a pro bono case study of UNM sports cuts on his blog and found that the school was likely overstating the cost savings by at least $800,000. In our following conversation, we talk about why the university erred in its assessment, what does the school's deficit actually mean, and how the Lobos could solve a number of their problems financially and why they almost assuredly won't. Moreover, we discuss the greater economic dissonance of college sports, UNM basketball coach Paul Weir's attention-grabbing comments about amateurism, and what Schwartz's plans are to create a more just system of compensation for the college-age athlete. There's certainly a lot for us to get to, and these issues aren't going away anytime soon. And so, without further ado, I give you Andy Schwartz. I want to uh, recall briefly for our audience how I was put in touch with you. I'm a friend of a other journalist named Ben Strauss, who now covers uh, sports media at the Washington Post. And in 2016, Ben and Joe Nacera, who was then a New York Times columnist, co-authored a book called Indentured, the Inside Story of the Rebellion Against the NCAA, which is just a terrific book and a really trenchant indictment against the economic system in college sports. And you were the, the uh, protagonist, if not indeed the hero of the book, which really builds upon an article that you authored in 2012 titled The National Letter of Indenture. And in that, you draw a comparison between college sports and the history of indentured servitude during American colonial times. And so I think it would be helpful if you could kind of uh, give our audience a little bit of your background, how you came to care about the economics of college sports, and how you then dawned upon this analogy, this historical analogy to uh, indentured servitude. Okay. Um, first, to be fair, I would suspect that the, the, the main protagonist in the, the book about the O'Bannon case is Ed O'Bannon. Um, but, but yes, I, I am one of a host of supporting actors in that book, and um, my mom thinks that I'm the main character. There you go. Um, so, um, the, the, um, 
about college sports is that people primarily learn about the economics of college sports from the people who make all the money. And so there is a, a story that's told, and you get it subtly um, when you're watching sports, and sometimes not so subtly. In the days when Billy Packer was calling the, the NCAA tournament, it was not so subtle. He was a huge proponent of amateurism. Um, so that very, very simple economic uh, concepts that anybody in the world would understand if it were said outside the context of college sports just seem to, to get no traction in, in the world of college sports because, well, they're, they're amateurs, dang it. Um, so you, I guess you, to, you started to ask me, how did I get to find out about this? In 1999, I was working on a merger case. I'm an antitrust economist, so what we do is we, we look at questions about um, collusion mean, <laughs> in the current terms, maybe that's a, I should define that. When two, when two or more firms get together and make joint decisions about how much product they're going to manufacture, what they're going to charge for their price, maybe they divide up the territories and say, you'll service the East Coast and I'll service the West Coast and we won't give competing bids to across the, the Rocky Mountains or something like that. Those are all illegal, generally speaking, under the antitrust laws. Um, I was in Europe working on a merger where the question was whether or not these two printer ink manufacturers merging was going to reduce price competition across Europe for printer's inks for things like newspapers and magazines and stuff like that. It's pretty obscure. Um, and but I, you know, I was based in California. I was just over there for a few months. One of my colleagues in California said to me, "Hey, I got asked by." the ABA's antitrust magazine to contribute to a piece in a special antitrust of sports issue, and I want to do a thing on, on um, the contrast between how pro sports leagues use the antitrust law appropriately to organize themselves and how, I, how it seems like the NCAA abuses it. You want to do it, and I'm, it's like I'm an antitrust person, I'm a college sports person, and they had never really come together until that point. So I said, sure. And um, we wrote, uh, you know, I was mostly in Brussels, but then eventually I got came back to, to the Bay Area, and we finished up the article and submitted it. And it was published in 2000. And effectively our argument was that um, the sports league that you can appeal to under antitrust law as needing some level of coordination, and that would be something as simple as for two factories to agree on how much each one is going to produce and when would be illegal. It's an illegal restraint of trade. But for two sports teams to agree when they're going to meet to play a game at the at the at Jerry World or something like that is completely appropriate because it takes two uh, entities to produce a sports contest. And by analogy, it takes multiple. Uh, sports entities to form together and make a whole a league and we all know that that a league season is way more interesting than just a series of barnstorming events like the Harlem Globetrotters which was a barnstorming team was popular but the NBA became much more popular in part because they played a whole season and they crowned a champion at the end and it was a you know it was like a, it's, a, it's a different product than barnstorming and it's in, arguably a much better product so um uh, we took those the, those concepts and we talked about how that's why, for example, the NFL can tell teams where they can play. Um, and, and there's there's case law on this, um, but 
the economics are that, it, that if they're going to produce a national football league, that being able to say you're not all going to play in New York City and, L- and Los Angeles is beneficial, um, and that there are constraints on that, but that generally speaking under the antitrust law, you can show that it's what we call pro-competitive, meaning that it's ultimately better for the market, even though there is a little bit of a restraint, and you know Al Davis has sued over this a couple of times, um, the late Al Davis had sued a couple of times, um, uh, but that generally speaking that you can make a good economic argument for why that's pro-competitive. And what we said in our article was that's true for the SEC, that's true for the ACC, it's not true for when the SEC, one sports league, and the ACC, another sports league, get together and jointly make decisions. Um, so when you were when you were writing this, what was your level of consciousness about about amateurism in general? Because this seems to be this seems to be somewhat removed from that. This just seems to come right out of your uh, your antitrust mind. Yeah, well, so the thing is, is that what we focused on in the, in the piece was, and therefore, the national NCAA rules, which say you cannot get paid more than what was then uh, tuition fees, room, book, and rec- and required tuition fees, room, board, and required books, was an illegal restraint of trade. It was effectively wage fixing, price fixing of athletes. And you don't have to think that athletes are employees to think that because you can you can price fix independent contractor prices. You can price fix royalty payments to musicians who have no employee relationship with the with the, um, the music producer, etc. It's not a question of are they employees or not. It's simply if you're making a financial offer to a person to engage in a service, you can't talk to your competitors and say we're both not going to offer more than X. Right? Right. Boom. That's illegal. And in 1990, I want to say one. The Ivy Leagues got busted by the Department of Justice for doing just this for smart kid scholarships to Ivy League schools. They all agreed that they would not offer merit scholarships. They didn't want to have a price war between Princeton and Harvard over the best and the brightest because if they did that, they would have less money to use on other things. And the Department of Justice came in and made them stop. And similarly, they also made an agreement that they would not collude on the need-based grants that they would make because what was happening was the Ivy League and a few other schools including MIT were meeting in Wellesley, Massachusetts which by the way is where I went to high school and they um, agreed on every single person who got admitted to more than one Ivy League or these other affiliated universities um, they were going to make an identical financial aid offer to each one of them so that there wouldn't be competition and the Department of Justice made them stop and they signed a consent decree, all of them, saying we won't do this anymore. So so there was, and this is all antitrust, has nothing to do with do I like um, Stanford football, which I do. Um, it's, just, it's just basic principles of our economy. Like our laws and our economy are set up under the principle that when firms get together and privately regulate, I'm almost reluctant to use the word regulate, but privately set the terms of commerce that it's bad for the firms, it's bad for the other side of the transaction, and it's bad for Americans as a whole because it, it creates inefficiency and waste in our, in our society. And so Thurgood Marshall, you don't really think of him as an antitrust guy, um, but Thurgood Marshall wrote in the Supreme Court case that the antitrust laws 
in general and the Sherman Act in particular are the Magna Carta of free enterprise. So this idea, you know, that oh well just dry antitrust, yes, but then we, we brought it we brought it specifically to the idea that when schools all get together and there are now three hundred and fifty going to be 354 Division One schools that are all price-fixing how much they agree to give to athletes, a maximum cap. And our argument then, and my argument today, uh, almost 20 years later, was that there's no way economically to justify this as in the same vein as um, teams need to set uh, a schedule teams need to decide the width of the field, that it was a, a fundamentally different proposition than the sort of things that the antitrust law says, yes, we should be able to do, because those things do grow commerce. But here, what they're doing is they're shrinking commerce. And I'll give you an example. In, in the video, in the O'Bannon case, one of the things was whether or not schools could collude to pay athletes in video games zero, which is what their rule was. And the court said, no, you can't do that. And what the NCAA did instead of allowing athletes to participate in the game was they dropped out of producing the video game. So this is a, a, a clear example where the antitrust laws say you can only make these sort of collusions if you can show it will grow commerce, that there'll be more transactions. But the moment that there was the possibility of more transactions, the NCAA took their ball and went home. And the same is true about shirts, jerseys with names on the back. People want to buy jerseys with the name and number of the star quarterback on the back, and the NCAA won't allow that to happen. So they're, they're, they're thwarting commerce, not growing commerce. It's the opposite of pro-competitive. It's what we call anti-competitive. So let me, let's, let's just back up for, I, I feel like most people are now familiar with Ed O'Bannon and at least the broad strokes of what he represents in the sort of legal pushback against the NCAA. But you had you. I, I, it's my understanding you had a role actually in that case. Could you could you sort of give the the overarching of of what the O'Bannon case was about and where you found yourself in it? Sure. So this is a, the stuff that we talked about that's in Joe and Ben's book, and I recommend it like you did to anybody who wants to know more about both the economics and the justice elements uh, in the NCAA. But so um, I had worked on a case. So. The paper that we talked about there, probably for more long, more long length than your, your listeners want, um, led eventually to a lawsuit called White v. NCAA, um, named for a Stanford athlete named Jason White, not the more famous Jason White. And it didn't really go very far. It, it, I mean, there was a settlement, and it was an unsatisfactory settlement from the point of view of, of the economist working on the case. But... A few years later, uh, a, a lawyer named Michael Hausfeld, who runs a firm called Hausfeld, um, sued on behalf of Ed O'Bannon, uh, who was the player of the year in the 94-95 men's basketball season and a star at UCLA and had a brief career in the NBA and then a longer career overseas, um, saying that effectively the NCAA was using his name and image in commercial products without his consent, but more importantly, that they had colluded to deny him the ability to negotiate a fair price by insisting that zero was the only price he was allowed. And um, the case took five years. Um, the day it was filed, I sent a letter to Hausfeld's firm um, saying that basically they needed to, need to hire my firm 
because we had been so involved in the White case, and I had learned a ton about um, the NCAA, and it took me about a year and a half to persuade them. I mean, they said yes, and then nothing happened for a year and a half, but eventually they got we got involved, and so we were there for the last three and a half years of it. The NCAA fought a really scorched earth um, defense. I think that in retrospect, they probably would, would admit that that was a mistake. If they had let the case go quickly, I think they would have won. Because in the, in the time between 2009 when that case was filed and 2014 when the, the, we went to court, in 2015 when the appeals court uh, ruled, college sports was in the process of, of flourishing <laughs> in a way it had never flourished before. And so the, the claim that college sports was too poor to cut the, the, the primary source of revenue into that revenue in beyond a scholarship became increasingly untenable. Plus, um, the way that the courts work is that there was an, a judge randomly assigned from the pool of judges in, in the Northern District of California. The judge who was chosen, her name is Claudia Wilson, uh, sorry, Claudia Wilkin, um, she knows, she knew then nothing and she now knows almost nothing about college sports. <laughs> and, and, and she um, she had in her mind the view that I think many people who are not hardcore watch all day Saturday college football fans, which was that college football was an intram- almost an intramural, not that big of a deal, um, was a you know was not all that different from the Glee Club, and because the NCAA dragged things out for five years, she had five years to be disabused of that notion. And by the end, she was saying things in court like, if you come in here and just say, because amateurism, that's not going to mean a lot to me because I don't find a lot of content in that word. Hmm. And, um, uh, you know, I don't think that 2009 Judge Claudia Wilkin even had the vocabulary to say it like that. Um, so, So I think that was a mistake. And she is now the judge in the current case that people sometimes call the Kessler case because Jeffrey Kessler is involved. It's or the Alston or Jenkins case because they're two of the plaintiffs. It has a really long real name. Yeah, I've been seeing it as Alston v. NCAA. But and, and so we're t- we're taping this now on Wednesday, September twenty sixth. The uh, our podcast will will be posted uh, several days later. So we are we are in the midst now. I is this now the final day of that of the trial in that case or at least one of the final days of the trial? Yesterday was the final day of live testimony. We had 10 days of live testimony over the course of September. It was spread around because of calendar issues. Um, but so as of yesterday, I'm no longer having to wear a suit. And, and so uh, whereas, whereas the O'Bannon trial was about the player likeness image and the use of player likeness, player likeness um, as it related to sports video games, this one seems to much more directly attack, um, although still somewhat indirectly, but more directly than the O'Bannon case, uh, attack, attack the notions of amateurism by looking at uh, whether or not uh, grant and aid scholarships should face market competitiveness. In other words, whether or not different schools or different college 
um, conferences should be able to determine what they can offer. Uh, uh, the grant and aid packages are able to offer to athletes and they shouldn't be constrained by just one standard set, you know, on high. Yes, I think that's fair. I think that it, this is, I don't say this uh, in an arrogant way because this, I'm not trying to say that there's a direct causal link, but this case is essentially the legal version of the challenge that the paper that I wrote with, with my colleague Dan Rasher in 2000, um, which says that if you need to, to fix the price at all, that the NCAA is the wrong level to do that. It should be done at the conference level. Essentially, that's the legal question, which is that could college sports be produced in a way that consumers like and that continues to treat athletes as students, at least as much as they are now, if those caps were set conference by conference rather than the same level for everybody. And the idea here would be is that it might be the case that an SEC consumer has a different level of tolerance for compensation than a Mountain West consumer. And the NCAA's argument against this is what? Um, well, I will try my best to say to, to, to say what they say without giggling too much. Me too. Um, one, one, if you pay athletes, they won't study anymore. Um, two, if you pay athletes, they won't really be students, and therefore no one will watch. Um, uh, three, if you pay athletes, then schools will um, uh, quit playing sports uh, and or just offer Ivy League-style sports and walk away from their TV contract, et cetera. Um, they also say that if you paid and, and when I say pay athletes, I should be clear, they're already paid. College athletes, especially in FBS conferences right now, receive in exchange for their labor services. They get their tuition paid for, they get all their fees paid for, they get room and board, they get all of their books, and they get a check for something between two and $5,000 that they can use on anything they want, but it's set ostensibly to cover the costs of the various things you need to go to college, like you know, gasoline for your car, all the things that like that a normal person gets paid a wage for to cover, like um, you know, eating out, things like that. Um, so they're paid now, but when I say pay, I mean paid more than currently allowed. They're just paid. And, they're paid shitty, in, in in many respects. But yes, they're well, they're paid. Well, right, and and I, as an antitrust economist, I have no trouble with someone being paid shitty, as you put it, if that's the market price. Right. The thing is that the price without caps, both sides agree that if there were no NCAA caps, that some athletes would receive very high compensation because they have very rare talents that are very valuable to schools. So the question really comes down to is, should schools be immunized from having to pay a market price, essentially because either paying a market price is bad because I guess we're a communist country now, or paying a price is bad because it will damage the snowflake football players, cause them to, un to, to underperform academically, or that there are people out there that will refuse to go watch the sport because um, the athletes are paid too much. And, and i got got to make one really antitrusty point here. It's not just that there are people out there that wouldn't go watch. 
because that may be true. You know, there may there are probably people out there that aren't watching the NFL because Colin Kaepernick once appeared in the, you know appeared for a period of time in that league and they're still mad about it. But the question is whether or not, when setting prices, schools can take that that hostility into account. So imagine that you run a a, a coffee bar, and you know that people don't like to have nuclear waste put into the coffee. It's really damaging to consumer demand, which is what the NTA says that paying athletes is like. It's like it's like dropping nuclear waste into the coffee. It makes it unpalatable to people, and no one will watch, or hardly anyone will watch. You don't need to collude with the coffee shop across the street not to put nuclear waste in your coffee. The argument the NTA is making is that even though you know nobody wants nuclear waste in their coffee, you're going to do it anyway unless there's a rule against it. And, and that's a very hard economical, economically logical argument to make that even though everyone knows it will be bad for demand, that fewer people will buy tickets, that TVs, TV networks will offer you less money, that if there weren't a rule, I said at the national level, that individual conferences say, you know what, go for it. Right. Put the nuclear waste in your coffee and see what happens. And I would ask any of your, of your listeners to ask whether that makes sense. And if you go, yeah, but they'll do it because they want to win, I would say, sure, but – do they really want to win in an, with an empty stadium, or do they actually think that if they win with these paid, paid more players, that people will go, I don't care how much money they make. They're good. I want to watch it. Right, right. That's the, the problem with the argument is that when you say, yeah, but they'll do it to win, what you're really saying is, and winning is what matters to consumers, not compensation levels. And I'll point you to any highly paid baseball team in Major League Baseball that wins the World Series those games are sold out. So the um, the University of New Mexico's men's basketball coach, Paul Weir, was my first podcast guest. Uh, we taped it a couple of weeks ago, and he made a little bit of national news because when I put the question to him this way, um, I said, in the spirit of fairness or ethics, I didn't ask him uh, along the lines of, of economics, but I just said in the spirit of, of fairness and ethics, should college athletes be free to earn whatever legal compensation they can without the restrictions that are currently placed on them? He said, quote, absolutely. And because so few people who are currently in the business or wherever in the business of college sports are willing to make that concession, um, it, it, it generated a little bit of news, deadspin, picked it up um, with a with a very uh, complimentary headline to what we were saying. Um, but in our conversation, we went on to theorize that if athletes were allowed to be compensated without restriction, the consequence would most would most directly fall on schools, minor sports. So basically, this would lead to the eradication of the Olympic sports because there wouldn't be then the money um, to pay for whatever, volleyball, track and field, etc. I then said to Weir that it, 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 in my mind, the, 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 the most direct um, or acute consequence would fall on individuals like him, would fall on men's basketball and football coaches and athletic administrators. Because at this moment, if you are trying to accomplish the goal of bringing in talent to a specific university, there's really only two ways that you can do it financially. You can either 
pay for facilities to be built that will impress athletes, or you can pay a lot of money to hire coaches who have a reputation for recruiting, for successfully recruiting these athletes. And now if all of a sudden those dynamics are changed when you can have a much more direct way of attracting athletes by providing to them um, or to their families, uh, then this would, this would very dramatically lower the compensations of college coaches. And he, he disagreed with that. Can you, can you weigh in to our, to our dispute over, over those uh, consequences? Yeah, so um, I think in some ways you might both be right, but um, you're definitely more right than he is. All right, so first of all, there are tons of Division II schools in this country, and not a one of them makes any money from their football or basketball program, but they have minor sports. And they have minor sports because the school decides that it's got a budget and it wants to allocate some money to having those sports because having those sports is part of offering a well-rounded campus to the non-athletes. It's also a way of inducing athletes to come to their school with a partial scholarship to play these minor sports and, and schools, especially if, you, if, if they're under-enrolled or always looking for ways to offer small discounts to get large checks written. Um, so, so the first thing is, is I'm not sure there really there there is an economic connection and, and we can talk about it but but it's far far smaller than what is it Weir Weir how do you pronounce it his name yeah he pronounces it Weir uh, Coach Weir um, said and and what I would ask everyone to think about is why do why does University of New Mexico have a particular sport now sometimes it's because the NCAA requires schools to have 14 sports to stay in D1 or 16 to stay in FBS, in which case, as long as a school wants to have an FBS football team, they're going to have 15 other sports. And probably most of them are gonna be women's sports because for Title IX purposes, in order to balance off having 85 athletes on scholarship in football, you need a lot of women. And you can't get there with a lot of women on one team or another because the NCAA has restrictions on the number of women's scholarships you can offer per sport. So there's this baseline uh, minimum there, which, by the way, the NCAA could raise any time they want. The moment the NCAA wants to live its rhetoric and wants to encourage schools to spend less on football and basketball and more on minor sports, raise the minimum to nine to 18 schools if you want to have a football team in, in FBS, and every single FBS school will add sports. Um, and there would be no antitrust problem. The, the antitrust problems on maximums, like if, if they said you can't have more than X sports, that would be an antitrust problem. But you must have at least, that's generally speaking, a, a far easier threshold to pass under the economics of antitrust that it's pro-competitive. So that's one thing. Two, um, the way that money works is that in a, in a university is that money comes into the university from a few sources. The primary source is probably tuition. In the case of a public school, there's also large legislative grants that are made to create the school and to keep it running for the public use. There will be grants from, from the government, federal government, like for research projects. There'll be donations. And in the case of schools with, with sports programs, there'll be some form of revenues, TV contracts, ticket revenues, the NCAA distribution from March Madness, et cetera. 
the fact that some of that money is generated by athletics does not mean in any way, in any sort of um, legal or economic or even logical way, that it has to be spent on athletics. Schools could, if they wanted to, take the money that they make from that and spend it on chemistry classes. Um, the fact that they choose to take that money and put a men's uh, wrestling team out there and compete is a sign that on the list of priorities of ways they could spend their money, men's wrestling is above the cut. Whatever the cut is, yeah, those are all good things, but we only have so much money and we can only spend it. And so the idea that the, the thing that will get cut if somehow the net profits from football decline a little bit, because that's what we're talking about here, is, is that if, if schools had to pay uh, athletes more money, the idea is there would be less surplus to, to spend on other things. The idea that it has to be a minor sport is an economic fallacy. And it's not even a budgetary truth. So, for example, when, when after the O'Bannon case, when schools were permitted to increase the scholarship to include that, that sort of um, two to $5,000 check that I talked about, about that sort of to cover expenses, um, Florida State adopted it right away, not surprising. Um, essentially what they were saying was the, we think that uh, paying out more money to athletes is a better way, better way for our school to, to behave than not doing it. It wasn't mandatory, it was voluntary. When they did that, they did not cut other sports. They went into the budget and they reduced the staff salaries, not even coaches, but secretaries and compliance officials and various bureaucrats within the athletic department. They reduced everyone's pay by 2%, and they shifted that money to athletes. So that, I think, is the best example that you can think of, of, of money is fungible. There's Money doesn't have one use, and if you change the, the way that firms, can, firms, and here I mean schools, can spend money in order to make money, because that's what they're doing, um, it's, it's not this direct correlation. It's not like, like people often make the mistake of analogizing a business or a, a university to a household, and they say things like, look, if you get a, if you, uh, get a 5% pay cut, or if your gas bill goes up by $100, that means you're going to have less money to spend on vacation. Um, that's probably, generally speaking, a true statement for a household, but that fundamentally misunderstands how businesses work. What businesses do, especially businesses with, with large pools of money, where we're talking eight, nine, ten-figure budgets, is that they assess the uses of their funds to maximize the benefits they're trying to achieve as a business. And schools are businesses, even though they're nonprofits, and the University of New Mexico is going through a complicated process trying to figure out the best way to maximize the impact of University of New Mexico on the world, to maximize the reputation of University of New Mexico, to maximize the, the um, prestige of its professors. All, it's, it's, it's complex. It's more complex than we could write down in a mathematical formula. But as an economist, I can tell you that, that what they're groping at is not, let's spend every penny that we make from Group A on Group A. Let's take every dollar we earn from the English department and spend it on English. Let's take every dollar we earn from the physics department and spend it on physics. It's we're bringing in money primarily through a few sources. How do we use that money to make sure next year's money is also big, and that the things that drive next year's money, like prestige as an academic institution, and that you know we contribute to the advancement of science and all these things that are in, involved in that, happen. 
So to get to your point, one of the things that schools do is they try very hard to have good sports programs because sports are a great advertisement for the university. I guarantee you that if you go to a, a, a state, you ask people, what are, the be- what are the best public universities in California? That schools like Cal, University of Cal- California, Berkeley, UCLA, will pop in their head before University of California, San Diego. Now, if you go and you look at the ratings, academic ratings of schools, Cal and UCLA are, in fact, world-class universities, but so is the University of California, San Diego. They have traditionally not emphasized their sports. They're in the process of moving into Division I because somebody at some point realized that what was missing from their portfolio, besides having, like, the best public medical school in the country and this, that, and the other thing, was no one knows who we are because we don't have a football team. <laughs> and we don't have a basketball team in the March, in March Madness on a regular basis. And, and so... Um, Schools pump money into their athletic program for a variety of reasons, and one of them is to improve their academic reputation. And under the current rules, you can only push so much money at the athletes. You can only give them their scholarship and $5,000-ish on top of that, and maybe $500 if you make a bowl game, and maybe $3,000 if you win the Heisman Trophy. There are There is money, but it's limited. And so... If you want to attract somebody to work at your company and you can't offer them salary more than, say, $60,000, what do you do? You make a really nice break room. You give them better health insurance. You, you offer more vacation time. And maybe you say, look, you're a relatively young person in this, in this field. You're going to be working with the best trainers so that when you're done working here, you're going to be even better at your craft. And by the way, you're going to do it in this, we're going to house you in this really plush mansion. You, you know, you compete on non-cash benefits, and that's what colleges do. That's why there's a lazy river as part of the University of Central Florida's athletic facility, not because floating down a lazy river makes you a better football player, but floating down a lazy river seems fun to a 17-year-old, and if you can't attract him by offering him more money, you have to attract him by offering him more funds. So then what would happen What would happen then to, uh, let's take the other part of, of the of the Weir-Libet debate on this. What happens to college coaching salaries under the scenario where athlete compensation is not capped? Yeah. So to, a, to an order of, uh, of approximation, about half of what coaches get paid for is coaching, and the other half is recruiting. And recruiting is the lifeblood of any any university. Your listeners can imagine what would happen if suddenly um, Alabama's first choice at every position were recruited to come and play for University of New Mexico instead. University of New Mexico would do much better in football, would sell more tickets, etc. And coaches get paid to recruit athletes because primarily they can't. Schools can't use money to recruit athletes. In the, in the NFL and in the NBA, there is a little bit of charm when somebody is a free agent. But the primary way that teams compete to get athletes to come is with cash. <laughs> and when that breaks down is when the NBA or the NFL's labor caps that are collectively bargained a completely different thing than, than a price fix, um, when they get in the way. So Kevin Durant... Everybody in the NBA basically could offer Kevin Durant the same amount of money, so he wasn't choosing based on money anymore. He was choosing based on quality of life issues. 
Well, so that's what's happening in college sports all the time is that athletes are choosing based on, among those things, which coaching staff is the best and which coaching staff wooed me the best. And so coaches make money by their ability to woo athletes in a way that they would not get paid if what the school could say is, we're going to give you this coach and here's $10,000. The $10,000 would carry way more weight than giving the coach $10,000 and hoping he provides a little more charm. So could you have you imagined or, or has are you aware of anybody who's actually done the 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 kind of thinking on paper about what the consequence would be to college coach salaries in this in a brave new world such as we're describing? I mean, are we talking about if you said then half of their if you kind of figure out that half of what they're getting paid for currently uh, deals with recruiting, would it mean that they would get in this future, half of what they earn now, or would it even potentially be more consequential? Would they get a fraction of, uh, of, of what they get now? I guarantee you they will get a fraction, but fractions can range from zero to infinity. So, um, <laughs> um, actually, they can range from negative infinity to positive infinity. But, um, uh, I, again, I, I, my ballpark is that they would be about, you know, we'd have the same range uh, uh, or the variation where Nick Saban currently earning something like 10 million ballparks he'd get five and somebody who's making one and a half million would get three quarters of a million but that essentially you know and that's i'm not that's not like an ironclad rule it's just based on the idea that about half of their compensation right now is essentially money that would be better spent luring athletes with compensation um and then also what we would see is that um Locker rooms, like the University of Texas has a locker room where each locker cost over $10,000 to make. I mean, think about that. It, you've been in a gym locker, and, you know, in my high school, I doubt they spent $10 on the locker. This was a $10,000 locker. It was made with some sort of wood that maybe they had to um, pay extra because it's on the endangered species list or something <laughs> like that. And um, it's... It's over the top. It's intentionally over the top because that wow factor when the recruit walks into the locker room is what they're using in lieu of, sir, the reason we want here's, – here's how much – you know, what, what my ex-wife used to say, say it with cash. It's like if you love me, give me money. And um, uh, I don't mean to besmirch her. She wasn't talking about our relationship. Um, she was talking about her employer relationship. Um and um, and that because the rules don't let them do that, they have to spend on lavishness in a crazy way. But also, the coaches get it. And so, yes, people have done this. Roger Knoll, who was one of the experts in the abandoned case and in the current matter, the professor at, at Stanford, he's more or less um, one of the, I would say, three founders of the discipline of sports economics, um, did a little, little model in his abandoned thing where he showed under certain exceptions that pay is about half, 50-50. So I, I get that number from him. Um, but there have been peer-reviewed economic studies that show that coaches' pay is higher than it would be if there, if there were not two monopoly facts, one being the monopoly that teams have over players, and the other one being the college football playoff being essentially a monopoly that um, – probably a legal monopoly, but a monopoly that generates profits above the long-run cost if there were multiple championship competitors. And, 
you know, we can all understand why there might only be there might only be one champion. In fact, so my colleague Dan Rasher has written a lot about how sports have this element of what what a lay person might call a natural monopoly. In that we do like to have a single national champion. Now, economically, that's not what we mean when we say nat- natural monopoly. Um, it's a much more technical term, but um, but that it has this element where, if left unchecked, you generally tend to see um, a single, like the AFL and the NFL as separate NFL, as separate football concepts worked just fine, but people still wanted the teams to play each other at the end of the year, which is how the Super Bowl came into being. The, the, the long run merger beyond that was about, about creating real monopoly power and anti-competitive monopoly power um, because the, the AFL and the NFL were tired of competing for talent. But, but the Super Bowl, as a culmination of two separate league seasons, is probably a natural pro-competitive good thing. Um, sort of like the UEFA, if people are sp- soccer fans, on top of the Premier League and La Liga in Spain and, and Serie A and all the, the, the European leagues, they have the UEFA Champions League where they let the best of the best compete to crown a European-wide champion. Those sort of like higher and higher and higher levels of matching the best against the best are good and people like them. Um, uh, but that's not the same thing. It's quite the same thing as saying, therefore, you should have a monopoly. Right, of course, of course. The um, I want to I want to talk with you now because where you sort of came on the map for fans of the University of New Mexico who wouldn't otherwise be familiar with your with your work was last month you posted on your blog Sports Geekonomics um, a case study of the University of New Mexico's decision to cut a handful of its minor sports including the school's you know, often nationally ranked men's soccer program. And you made the argument in this uh, case study that the school was likely grossly overstating the savings it was claiming to make based on the reduction in athletic scholarships. I know this is a pet interest of yours. I'd like you to kind of take, I mean, you did a very nice job in the blog and I will uh, direct people um in the accompanying story to this podcast to a link um to your blog but can you can you kind of talk about why first of all this is not an unfamiliar thing for for schools to be making in your mind and now i've been persuaded erroneous claims of what they would save by cutting sports tell me what you found at new mexico um including i think we had previously exchanged some some thoughts where you said that UNM actually did better than most in this analysis even though they failed in in you know some fundamental ways um I'd probably give them a C rather than an F um that's the nicest thing people have said about UNM in quite some time frankly (laughs) um okay so um I think that everybody out there has an idea that there's a difference between price and cost, but oftentimes we we tend to use them interchangeably. Like we'll say, and, it's, and in part it's because what, whether it's a price or a cost depends on your perspective. If I charge you for something, it is a cost to you, but it's my price. It's not my cost. And I think the easiest way people can understand that is when you buy maybe say um, music on the internet 
and you buy a song for 99 cents, it does not cost 99 cents to make one more MP3 of a song that's already been produced, right? Whatever the cost was before you bought that, it didn't add 99 cents to the cost, but the price is 99 cents. Firms set prices in order to make profits. We all understand that too, right? A, a, a for-profit firm. And to do that, they must price higher than their cost. And they, in fact, have to have price higher more than just their incremental cost, but their long-run average cost, or else, you know, it's like that old joke is I lose money on, on every sale, but I make it up in volume. Um, it doesn't really work. But if you, if you make a little money in every sale, you can make it up in volume. And so the fundamental problem that college sports counting has, and it's baked into the system, it's required more or less under the NCAA's what they call the agreed-upon procedures, which is a fancy term that they use, which I think is designed to make it feel like it's an accounting standard that's been promulgated by some neutral industry group, but it's not. It's just an agreement among the NCAA schools. This is how we're going to all do it, right? It's part of the collusion. Um, right. So just 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 to just to plant a flag real quickly. So this is a report that every member institution is required to submit to the NCAA, where they hire an outside accounting firm. You you UNM hires one of the big three accounting firms, and they produce this report um, annually to the NCAA. That's right, and and they submit it in a variety of ways. So there's some some versions that are are audited, but what they're auditing is not does this comport with some you know Securities and Exchange Committee or federal government or even accounting profession standards. They're auditing whether it complies with the NCAA's self promulgated standard. Right. And that self promulgated standard requires the schools to account for a scholarship at list price. And so, imagine um, you have uh, a you you run a soda shop, and you buy your Coke for twenty five cents a can, and you sell it for a dollar a can. Right? That doesn't isn't outrageous. You buy it wholesale, you sell it retail. You give somebody a free can. What did it cost you? It did not cost you a dollar. It cost you twenty five cents. And I think people can understand that now. If the person was going to, they had the dollar in their hand, they were about to pay you the dollar, and you said, you know what, it's on the house, then it did cost you a dollar because you forewent a dollar that was about to be in hand, right? But if they're like, I can't afford a dollar, can I have a glass of water, please? And you say, you know what, just have a Coke. So they weren't going to buy it unless you gave them a discount. The, the cost to you is not the, the amount of the discount. It is the amount of cost you incurred to provide them with a zero revenue product. So in the, in the academic context, when you, school X, University of New Mexico, when you say to somebody, um, I tell you what, we normally charge out-of-state people, can you remind me what, $30,000 is that about right for out-of-state? Yeah, just a, just a hair under that, right? Right, we normally charge out-of-state people 30000 for room, board, books, tuition fees. We're going to charge you $25,000. We're giving you a $5,000 discount. Un under NCAA rules, that athlete gets listed as a $5,000 cost, not as a $25,000 source of revenue. And it does not cost on the margin. Once, 
once you have a University of New Mexico up and running, and the electricity is going, and the professors are being paid, and the, the dorms are being run, the food is being cooked, it does not cost an additional $30,000 to bring in one more out-of-state student. They do that, in fact, because they want to cover, with all the profit from that out-of-state student, the already incurred every year fixed costs. And um, but what the NCAA's accounting says is that by offering that, that in this case, it would be a, like a, a one-sixth scholarship, um, you know, 16 17% scholarship, um, by doing that, they have incurred $5,000 of cost, when in fact, the, the economic transaction is really much more like, hey, come to our university and we will only charge you $25,000. And if it only costs, say, $10,000 on the margin to provide the services, to provide room in the classrooms that are already offering classes, to provide a bed in a dorm that might otherwise go empty, to provide food that does not cost what the food plan is charging to cook, um, et cetera, to provide the use of books through a rental program when the books are either are purchased at wholesale or just being rented and they get them back. Those don't cost anywhere near the $30,000 or the $25,000 that's charged. So the school's making a profit on this person coming from out of state, but the NCAA accounting says they're losing money. And this would be, this is especially true if a school is under-enrolled, and my understanding is that not only is the University of New Mexico under-enrolled, but it's, their enrollment is shrinking so that they have space in the dorms, they have excess classroom space. Essentially, when you have an extra dorm room and you have this unfilled seat, putting a person in that dorm room costs you almost nothing because it's not like there's maid service, like at a hotel or something like that. Yeah, there's probably going to be an incremental increase in the use of electricity to run computers and a refrigerator and um, boombox or whatever it is these, that people use to play music these days. <laughs> and yes, maybe on the margin, there's a little more uh, wear and tear on your professors because they have to grade one more paper and maybe they ask for more money, but it is, it's so close, so close to zero that, you know, from the high level that we can look at from the outside, zero is the best. Of all the schools that's out there, what are what are the ones you would imagine where this would not be the case? Where actually a an athlete is taking up space that would go to a full paying out of state. Yeah. Um, so uh, I am I am student. within view. I can look out my window right now and see one. University of California, Berkeley. City of Berkeley is very densely populated, and there is no room for really making more dorm space. If there were, they would build more dorms, but they can't. So they are full. And at least for freshman class, where everyone's required to live on campus, every athlete that they admit is a non-athlete that can't get in, and they have a huge wait list, and the University of California system is, is choking full of smart students that want to go to Berkeley and end up going to, to Merced, which is one of our other UC systems, and it's out in the valley, and it's less desirable for a lot of people than living in a nice, vibrant city. And... Um, and so um, that's a school where the list price is probably pretty close to the actual cost to the university. And I don't mean cost in the sense like it still doesn't cost anything more to put somebody in the dorm room, but it, there's a foregone revenue. It's what economists call opportunity cost. When I let you sleep in that bed, 
I can't put someone in that bed who is going to pay me $10,000 a year for the right to sleep in that bed, so I lose. It's a cost to me of $10,000. But that is not the case at the majority of D1 schools, and certainly not, as I understand it, at the University of New Mexico. Yeah, in fact, I think it was about a week or two after the UNM um, announced uh, the cuts uh, or re-announced the cuts after some protests that there was the news that they're already shrinking uh, uh, attendance has shrunk even more than suspected. So there's there's absolutely no question that the opportunity cost of athletes filling the slots at the University of New Mexico is uh, is zero uh, along those lines, and probably will be for right. till the end of time. Yeah, or certainly for any any would be freshman soccer men's soccer player right now. They're not going to fill up before that soccer player is done with his eligibility. So what's it? What, and and you, I know you've encountered this at other places. I want to talk about your work at, at UAB. Um, but the question then, so UNM, like many other schools in its conference and other schools around the country, is currently undergoing this whole debt reduction measure um, and is is and this austerity measure. And the news articles of the last five years have repeatedly railed against it, its athletics department being in debt. So given that, why wouldn't a school like UNM make the argument, because as, as of this date they have not, why wouldn't they make the argument that, oh, actually, we're, we're overstating the cost, or if you, if you change the perception of what the costs of the athletes are, we're really not in as much debt as, as we're claiming, or as or as is being perceived, why wouldn't they then make the argument uh, when they're in this crucible that these that these uh, athletic scholarships are not costing what the NCAA claims they're costing? Well, so it's sort of the same reason why magicians don't explain where the rabbit came from when they pull it out of the hat. Is that you're if you if, if you tell people how the trick works, then the illusion goes away. Um, there's a great paper by Brian Goff and I want to say Dennis Wilson, I think is his co-author on the paper, where they say that there's two competing tensions. There's one tension, which is that if you show how profitable college sports are, then the labor force is going to say, wait a second, we want to cut. But on the other hand, if you hide that profit, then the faculty says, why are we spending so much money on sports? And what you want to do is find the right balance where you can effectively hide enough profit to um, defend off the labor force, but not look so poor that the faculty senate, which is generally toothless at a university, can get the momentum to get outside forces involved and um, and rail against the, the, the debt, the, the loss of money. And that what they conclude is that generally speaking, the, the schools are far more afraid of the of an uprising of the labor force than they are of an uprising of the faculty, and, and you can say what that what that says about the, the strength of the faculty senate at, at a various schools. But these are agreed upon procedures that the whole NCAA has to follow, so it has to be good enough at hiding some of Alabama's profits. Well, of course, if you get to the bottom of the spectrum, something that can make, um, let's pick a school that thinks it's break even. Um, there are ACC schools that claim to be to be losing money. I won't name any because I think I might know them for, for confidential reasons. Um, 
Wake Forest testified yesterday in court, in open court, that they lose money on their athletics. Um, if you want to hide Wake Forest profits, you're going to end up making the University of New Mexico look really bad um, just because it's going to have a, you know, even if that's a common impact on all of them, if you, if you, raise the, if you lower the water level, some, someone's going hit to the, hit, the, hit rock bottom. Um, and, um, and, you know, University of New Mexico really is suffering real, not fictional financial problems in general, because when you have, a, if you have high, high fixed costs, which is like a university is like the highest fixed cost kind of thing in the world, if you think about it, there's just, just tons and tons of people doing things that you can't really do in small doses. Um, and when you start to shrink, it's very, very hard because every single person you lose was like a pure profit center. Mm. And you're all, you're, you're, your costs aren't shrinking at all, but your revenue is shrinking. That's a dangerous thing. You can get into a death spiral. It has nothing to do with athletics. And in fact, athletics is helping them stave it off, but they don't know it. So then the second part is, well, why aren't they smart enough at this point to say, okay, okay, it, it's generally true, but we're, we're the exception. Like, you know, there is this problem. Um, when I went to college, I learned about something called hege hegemonic ideology theory. It was taught by a guy named Stephen Krasner at Stanford, a professor of political science and international relations. And what he argued was in the first generation when a hegemon, a big power, um, creates ideology, it's doing it um, cynically. It's doing it to fool the masses into supporting its power uh, process. So, for example, he argued that, that right after World War II, the, Harry Truman was arguing that, that – um, the big anti-communist and the anti-Soviet move was necessary because America was tired of war and wouldn't have supported the sort of engagement in Europe otherwise, that they had to gin up Red Scare. But that a generation later, when Reagan said it and when Reagan's people said it, they believed it. They had had a generation of drinking that Kool-Aid, and they knew, they knew nothing else. So they didn't, they didn't get the cynicism anymore. They were sincere. It was maybe still wrong, maybe it was right, but it was sincere. And I think the same thing has happened in college sports, which is that when Walter Byers, who was the first executive director of the NCAA and who did a lot of the, the crafting of the language that is embedded in our way of talking about college sports, such as the term student-athlete, he knew at some level that he was fighting against market forces. When he said athletes shouldn't be paid, it wasn't because he thought that if they were paid, demand would go down, but the other way around. He thought that demand would go up, and he just thought that was crass. So that's why, in under Walter Byers, there was a rule that you couldn't be on TV more than twice a year as a football team, because they wanted to sort of have this sort of socialist, spread everybody around, let everyone be equal thing, and he was afraid that commercial, treating it like a com commercial business, um, that you'd see Oklahoma on TV a lot more than you saw you would see Michigan Tech, and he was right. But the law said after 1984, it's illegal to have those sort of agreements because in our country we think consumers should decide who's on TV, not some guy at the time it was Kansas City, now some guy in Indianapolis. And so I think that all of the people who work in a place like University of New Mexico who have gone through the, the cult inculcation process that is working within 
college sports don't know that they are being fooled by their own numbers. Hmm. Like, they don't under... And, and if you think about it, most accountants who are smart people, good with numbers, don't spend a lot of time thinking about the theory of accounting. They understand the practice of accounting. I actually took several courses in accounting in, in business school. I took three courses. And when I graduated from business school, my teacher said, why didn't you apply for the um, best accounting student award? Because you had to put your name in the list. And I was like, because I only took three courses. And she's like, you don't know how many three is in that, in that sentence that you just said. And so people are graduating with MBAs and going to work as accountants. Or people are getting CPAs. You know, and, and they know how to do accounting, but they don't know why they're necessarily doing accounting. So economists, we're really arrogant. We think we understand the why of accounting better than, than many accountants. I doubt there are many people that are in there thinking about, is this number that I'm putting down for the cost of the scholarship an accurate reflection of the cost to the University of New Mexico as a whole for providing these services? Because that's the question. It's not necessarily the question that the athletic director asked. The athletic director is asking, how much money have I been allocated to hand back to the university in the form of paying for scholarships? And that's a budget question. That's not an economic question. It's not a money question at all. It's about numbers on a piece of paper. But I doubt that anybody in the department is asking, what is the economic impact to the institution as a whole from providing or not providing this partial scholarship to a men's soccer player? And unless they do that, and unless they think about that, they're never going to get past the sort of attitude of like, look, this is what the department, the university charges my department, so of course it's my cost. And, and I would say like, well, your cost isn't really relevant to the people in the bursar's office or the provost's office. Their cost is what's important. And to them, if anything, you are giving them money when you let in a student. So they're making money. Now, that's kind of overstating it in the other direction because they are incurring costs, but but um, but this idea that just because it's a number on a piece of paper that it is rep that it's true, um, any any good accountant will tell you that almost that, that that many many accounting numbers are a sort of a fiction that is designed to help understand a certain process. But if you use it for the wrong, if you use a fiction that's appropriate for one context in a different context, you go from being a useful fiction to a misleading fiction. So I don't know how much you followed this since so you, you posted your blog item on August 28th. And then I think you posted this sort of a, a response to some questions or pushbacks a few days later. So I don't know if you followed this uh, in the week since. But but essentially, there was this, you know, giant statewide uproar over this, uh, over the issue of, of UNM cutting sports, most of it being rather schmaltzy talking about how important soccer was to the community. Um, how, but, but I think within last, the last week, the state auditor decided to take up the issue now. This is a new state auditor, or relatively new. The previous state auditor has done a lot of work on UNM's athletic department um, as well. And he seemed to have adopted uh, your line of thinking. I think it's gotten into the bloodstream where he talked about wanting to revisit the question of whether or not UNM was actually saving money or whether or not this was just a matter of left pocket, right pocket, um, and not money actually or not significant money leaving the campus on account of these, uh, of these sports um, being had at, had at the school. So I... I, I'm, I'm curious to see what 
his office will now do or whether or not he kind of pushes this line further um and i i'd be curious in 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 other instances where you've uh, maybe university of alabama birmingham is is the is the best example um of where the decision to cut sports at uab it was it was a major sport it was football but the decision to cut sports when reversed has uh gotten people to reflect on the kinds of things you'd like them to think about in terms of all these tabulations done well so i i saw an ap article that said some of the things that you said and and i said to my wife hey look i made a small impact on the world so i i do think that that um me and others, there are other economists out there who, who try to make this point, are slowly, like you said, entering the bloodstream. But, but it's, it's difficult because, you know, it's easy to take some guy who doesn't even work in a university context who's, you know, got a blog and say he's just a crackpot. Um, but, you know, I do think that it would be great. Like, for example, I don't know the name of the author in New Mexico, but I would love to give them some pro bono work and just walk them through, somebody who's a state auditor is going to have the requisite understanding, even if so he even if he hasn't um, uh, focused on it, to think, okay, right, there's the difference between price and cost, and let's get at this. There are, there are elements of managerial accounting that are directly appropriate for this, so if there are people in that auditor's office who, who understand managerial accounting, I think I could help them. Uh, and not just me, but I mean, I'm offering my services, but there are many people that could help them. Um, yeah, so in the University of Alabama, they there was a very, very political situation that mostly hinges around the fact that UAB, University of Alabama, Birmingham, is, in, is has the same set of, like, sort of, I don't know if they're chancellors or trustees or whatever, but the, ultimately, they are part of the same university as University of Alabama, Tuscaloosa, the one that the Crimson Tide won, and also Huntsville. Um, even though there are other public universities in Alabama, including Auburn, that are under a different system. So the same people who ultimately make decisions about big-ticket board of director items for Tuscaloosa make those same decisions for Birmingham. And all the people in Birmingham will tell you that Tuscaloosa is jealous of Birmingham. And I don't have the requisite expertise to tell you how much of, of the conspiracy theories are or aren't true, but people who want to learn about them, there's, there's lots of people out there writing about them. But their theory was that this was a this preordained decision. Get out of football. You, we would, we, we don't want Birmingham, the bigger city with the with the vibrant sort of modern urban economy, to outstrip Tuscaloosa. That's the theory. The, what I can tell you is that the report that they got made all and even more of the mistakes that are in the UNM report. And, and so this is why I say that they, the, the UNM deserves some credit. UNM understood that some of the, of the money that they spend on minor sports comes from the NCAA and is conditional on giving that sport. So if you, if you cancel a sport, the NCAA takes away, stops giving you money so that your revenue goes down. And, and in UAB's case, they assumed that that money would keep coming, and it won't. In UNM's case, they, they correctly, and I think, you know, as far as I can tell, to the penny, got it right, how much money next year they won't get for not having because they don't have a soccer team anymore, et cetera. Um, and that's about a hundred thousand dollar mistake in the case of it would have been a hundred thousand dollar mistake in the case of UNM. I can't remember the UAB amount, um, but they didn't make that mistake. So, 
So you can imagine that they would have been $100,000 even more wrong if they had. Um, at UAB, because of this political uproar, um, in order to fend it off, they hired a crisis management PR firm which suggested that they appoint an independent commission to study whether or not the cuts were warranted. And um, the crisis firm said, make sure you put your, um, like, one guy on the firm, on the thing who's in your pocket who can drive it. Um, and I'm, I'm saying this, I've seen those documents. Um, and the one guy was, like, the lawyer for UAB, but somehow, I don't know how they managed to do this. They managed to to get this guy to let them hire my firm to do the independent analysis. And the reason I'm saying like it's incredible is because typically a firm that gets hired is like the original firm that did this, which is that they're like, what number do you want? We'll give it to you. And we were like, no, we're going to use standard economic principles that by the way, my business partner, Dan Rasher, has done for his own university. So it's not like we have this, this crazy out there, never been used theory. We were going to we, we showed them our University of San Francisco analysis and said, this is what we're going to do. We're going to go in and... Example of the sort of thing that we were going to do, that a typical uh, collegiate accounting firm slash consulting firm doesn't do, is we were going to study, we were going to do a couple of focus groups. We were going to study what portion of the UAB campus of non-athletes came to the school because they had a football team as a uh, as part of the campus offering, you know, that the Saturday afternoon experience that you get at uh, at Tuscaloosa was also part of the experience at, at UAB, that sort of thing. And we were also going to do a focus group on the minor sports that were being offered uh, at, at, for cuts, uh, women's rifle and women's bowling and see how many of those athletes had chosen to come to UAB over some other school and were paying partial tuition, partial out-of-state tuition in many cases, how many of them would have gone someplace else? Like, was the attraction of being able to continue to compete intercollegiately while, while at UAB part of the attraction? And also put the same question for walk-ons on the football team. There are a lot of guys who want to play college football, who know they are not good enough to play, uh, be a scholarship athlete, and who go to a school with the intent of walking on. And some of those athletes um, won't go to a school if they don't have football. Uh, in Division Three, it's, it's actually really common. Division Three schools, sort of in a general way, are having trouble attracting 18-year-old men to their campus education is is the, the ratio of males to females is is shrinking broadly especially at liberals liberal art colleges that are the sort of schools that are d3 schools and d3 schools are finding that having a football team where everyone on the team has to pay to be on the team because at d3 there are no athletic scholarships helps them um, avoid having their male female ratios shrink even more and it's generally speaking campuses want to have you know they don't want to go too far in either direction in male-female. That, that combination is seen as attractive. And so having football can actually turn out to be a way to maintain a, um, a level of maleness on the campus that might otherwise happen. So those were the sort of studies we were going to do. And um, I guarantee you that neither of the other groups did.
did that sort of thing. And that's the kind of economic analysis you need to do to understand whether or not your team is losing or making money by having, say, a, um, a skiing team. If um, you want to understand the economics of the skiing team, you need to know whether the skiing team is serving as a draw for people who are paying you tuition, especially out-of-state tuition. If you don't know that, you cannot say whether the offering of a, of a 10% scholarship is a cost or a benefit. So let me ask you about the University of New Mexico real quickly, because while it hasn't even been considered on the chopping block or the reduction block, let's say, um, I've been interested about the football program, which seems to have incidentally run its own experiment over the last three years. Um, the last season was a losing season. The crowds were sparse. The revenue was sparse. Um, and below whatever the university had projected it would be through season ticket sales or individual walk-up ticket sales, etc. The two prior years to that, however, the team was on the field successful. They went to a bowl game. They had winning records. Those are not, those are not things to be taken for granted at the University of New Mexico in terms of football. Um, and yet everything else in terms of the revenue and the crowd support mirrored the losing season. Um, so I've said this in, uh, in other forums where I've said, you know, Bob Davey, the football coach, has kind of run this experiment about what is winning, you know, mean for the actual financial success of the football program. And it seems like it's, you know, it's borne out that it doesn't mean much, that there is a ceiling of interest in Albuquerque for college football. And unless UNM suddenly became a really dramatically improved program that went to a BCS Bowl or something outrageous like that, this is about what they can expect. And so then it, I, I wonder the question, at what point is this just a waste of money? Not to continue to field a football program, but to spend the kinds of money that they're attempting to spend each year and, and spend even more on, if it's on the recruiting budget or the salaries of, of, the, uh, of the coaching staff. As far as I understand, they're going to get roughly the same, you know, amount of money, whether or not they go to the New Mexico Bowl or whether or not they finish with a sub 500 record. So is there an argument that you could be made that, that you know, that you could see where there's justification for them to continue to spend the money that they're spending now or as they would like to do, as the athletic director has asked for uh, to spend, you know, what might be a few hundred thousand dollars more in the football program. Okay, well, so just so I get the, I'm gonna play weaselly expert witness here with you for a second, just so I get the complete hypothetical. In your view, version of the world, what do they do instead? Either they, let's say, reduce some of the costs that they're paying for their football program, like the true costs, the salaries, the recruiting budget, the travel budget, um, the things that wouldn't necessarily affect the athlete health or experience, but would affect the coaching, you know, what, what the head coach makes, what his, how many assistants he can hire and what, at what pay. Basically try, I mean, to try to reduce the amount of money being spent on this football program because I'm not seeing the difference. I'm not seeing the benefit of them spending even w what they're spending now. And this is all sure. um, uh, this is all predicated on the fact that this is a school, as you well know, 
um, that is claiming to be uh, indebted uh, or, or is claiming that its athletics department is in debt? Yeah, okay. So I think that there is definitely room within almost any sports league for a team uh, to find the absolute minimum it can spend that will avoid it will avoid being kicked out of the league and to free ride on the efforts of the other teams in the league. Um, so there's room there's room for a strategy I think like you have discussed where New Mexico is the lowest paying uh, team in FBS football for coaches spends the least amount of money on recruiting, um, offers the minimum number of scholarships required to get athletes and, and everybody else is a walk-on or a partial scholarship recipient. And I should just add, there are some people out there that think that partial scholarships are not allowed in FBS football, but that's false. They're just uncommon, and they're uncommon because for most schools, um, the benefit of paying a full scholarship exceeds the cost of losing an athlete to some other school that's willing to pay. But if you are trying to be a, a bottom feeder and to, ap, to you know to be to basically put in the absolute minimum amount of, of, of expense into your team, um, you would hit the 76.5 scholarships that are required. It's it's on a two-year rolling basis, so you could be less than that or more than that in any given year. But on average, you need to hit 76.5 scholarships, and everybody else would be would be a walk-on, and you would basically go 0 and 12 or you know maybe not 0 and 12 but you'd go 2 and 10 a lot and the goal would be that you can advertise when when people look at your school generally not not just uh, as a sport product but to attend the school that the University of New Mexico is an FBS school they're in the Mountain West obviously basketball is an example the pit and all that stuff New Mexico I think fancies itself more of a basketball powerhouse but they are a member of an FBS conference with all the benefits that includes revenue sharing things like that and and this is a, a strategy not dissimilar for what the temp from what the Tampa Bay Buccaneers did in the National Football League in the 1980s in a period of time when the 49ers won four or five Super Bowls during the decade the Buccaneers made more money they made more money by spending the absolute minimum what they could on talent and sharing equally in all of the shared revenues. So it's not a bad business strategy. But the question is, why does any school have a football team to begin with? Yes, you get the advertising benefit to say we are an FBS school, but if that sentence doesn't end with a period but ends with a comma, and the comma is, yeah, and they're the joke of FBS, it's not clear necessarily that that's actually going to achieve sort of what you want to achieve. It's not clear that when Columbia was on that huge losing streak in the Ivy League that it was necessarily accruing to their benefit to say, we're an Ivy League school. Yeah, everyone knows we're a joke on the field, but we're smart academically like that. Anytime you have to say, well, but, maybe that maybe that harms it. I, I don't have the expertise to tell you just in a vacuum whether or not that strategy would be smart or not, but I don't think it's it's ridiculous. Well, and then, and then maybe, right, and maybe there is some sort of half measure there. I mean, I, I'm sort of, I'm asking this in response to the athletic director recently coming out and at New Mexico coming out and, and pointing out to the fact that 
they spend at New Mexico less than their conference rivals or the mean of their conference rivals in terms of their recruiting budgets um, and some other expenses that, again, I don't seem to inure to the athlete's benefit, but more just seems to be what they think is is important to be competitive or at least financially competitive. And so I, I wonder, I could see how if, if UNM started spending $20 million more on its football program annually, um, how that would make a difference. But, it, but given the amounts of money that they are capable of spending more, um, and given what they spend right now, I, I think I'm not exactly seeing the wisdom other than I know athletic directors are sort of just reflexively inclined to find ways of spending money on their departments and in their major programs. So that's so I'm not I'm not even sort of envisioning the ultimate sort of uh, bottom feeder scenario that you laid out. I'm just I'm wondering at what point can an athletic director not legitimately make the claim that more spending more on a football program like New Mexico is actually going to produce any kind of benefit to the financial health of the athletic department in the end. Yeah, I, I, I think I agree with you that the dollar amounts you're talking about being funneled into the things that are generally done to improve a football program like paying coaches more and gussying up locker rooms and things like that, when you're competing against the $100 million budgets and the $10,000 per player lockers, um, I think it's going to be difficult to have a, a wow factor in that environment. But I don't think that necessarily – I think that University of New Mexico could um, zag when everybody zigs, sort of. Um, and here's an example. Um, right now, the University of Nebraska – is very proud of the fact that they offer any um, any athlete who uh, on well, for the purpose of football we can say any two year football player or more who um, who graduates and takes a um, a special seminar not a, like a full semester seminar it's like a weekend class I think um, can receive seventy five hundred dollars towards doing a job after their first job after college so if you um, take a, an internship at where you're an administrative assistant at a company that you want to work with long-term, but they're only hiring sort of, you know, minimum wage or non-wage interns, you can have your income supplemented by Nebraska. And they promise this when they're recruiting people to everyone um, in the sport. And as far as I know, they're the only one at, at every sport. They're only the only school that does this right now. I could imagine if New Mexico did something similar where they, they, um, essentially pushed the envelope of the NCAA's rules in the way that Nebraska has and said to athletes, yeah, you could go to pick a school that you think that New Mexico is losing talent to. You could go there and, yeah, they're a little, they've got nicer locker rooms, but we're going to put money into your first-year paycheck. Whatever sport you, whatever you do, whether you play a sport, whether you have a job at Enterprise Car Rental, whatever you do, we are going to supplement your income by $10,000, say, um, for, you know, uh, 60 people. That's six, that's $600,000, right? Am I doing the math right? That sounds um, right, right. Um, that's, that's, you know, probably in the ballpark of adding 
adding pay to their coaching staff, what sort of to get it more comparable with whatever that rival is. I think that sort of thing would have a bigger bang. Um, and it would also, I think, be um, maybe brand building for the University of New Mexico, not just the University of New Mexico football team, but as an innovator and as being student focused. And there's a lot of, you could make a lot of arguments that being a first mover and even if the result is a, a benefit war, a salary war, where everyone's suddenly doing this, and now you're back where you were, only you're spending more money, but everyone knows New Mexico kind of did it. And like for whatever reason, Nebraska is doing it, but they're kind of hiding it under a, a bushel basket. I don't quite know why. I think it's because they want to do it on the slide, but they're not really 100% sure the NCAA allows it. It came out in court recently. It, it's If it's not allowed, um, Nebraska is going to have some serious explaining to do. So, um, But that sort of thing, I think, is a, a better – just – copying your competitors and doing a less good job is rarely a way to keep pace. Uh, and just spending money because it's there, which is oftentimes why the big guys do it. They've got extra money. If they give it back to the, to the administration, they're just going to waste it on things like academic scholarships and improving education, and we wouldn't want that. <laughs> so they spend it, on, they spend it on, on slight improvements to their quality of living, nicer offices, nicer locker rooms, just things that make it a little bit nicer flights to go recruiting people. You know, there is an element of the, the what, what economists call the principal-agent dilemma, where the principal, meaning the university, sometimes tasks an agent, in this case maybe the athletic director, to achieve a broad goal and to give them a budget and to give them autonomy to do it. But the, the agents, in this case the athletic director's, um, Incentives are not perfectly aligned with the, with the principles, and so they care a little bit more about their own personal comfort than the overall success of the university. So money gets spent on creature comforts rather than than actual things that achieve better reputation for the university. And that's the good thing about compensation, unlike sort of like creating a perk environment, which is sort of what the NCAA rules encourage, is that when you give compensation to a third party, the intermediary doesn't really have that like. Their incentives are, are maybe to be a good steward of your money rather than just to throw the money around. And that's not always true because the coach and the athletic director might be friends, and if the coach gets the raise, the athletic director might say to himself, you know what, if all these coaches get a 10% raise, I'm probably going to get a 10% raise too because I can justify it now because salaries are higher. And there can be perverse incentives anyway. But generally speaking, um, if you can focus the tools in the hands of one of your agents so that he or she – is more aligned with you that, okay, I'm only going to spend this money if it's going to help the program as opposed to, or I get a perk that, or I get a perk can lead to wasteful spending. And we see some of that, I think. Well, yeah. And I, I, I think that's very interesting. So as, as we're sort of winding down here, give me, uh, give me the solution for UNM's, uh, self-proclaimed debt in its athletics department. Um, okay, so my understanding is that the athletic department debt is owed to the university itself, not to a third party. Is that right? It's a, I think it's a little bit of both. Like, for example, part of the debt it relates to the um, remodel of the basketball arena done about eight or nine years ago, which uh, the university um, recently took off the athletic department's books 
but the debt service of the arena re renovation was was on the athletic department's books for the first nine years or so after the remodel um so did they did they not make those payments um it's it's hard to say i mean it would seem like they haven't or at least not haven't fully i mean one thing that i've been you know this was done in 2010 where they did this uh the 60 million dollar renovation of the pit no one actually knows what the final figure is going to be because of any number of things including the debt service and the accrued interest i would imagine on that um so I don't think that they've been able to do this in part because the strategy for doing this was to sell luxury suites that they haven't been able to sell anywhere near at the rate that they had suggested they would. So I'm, I'm assuming okay. not. So there, there, it's likely that not all of this is just expen- you know, expenses to main campus or, or uh, money that needs to go back to main campus. It's, it's also quite possible that the debt is accrued to all the, you know, some, some actual expenses that are leaving the campus okay well so for, I, I don't have a, a magic wand for those i think that um the sort of things that have been suggested the cutting of sports is not going to really put them in much of a better position to do a better job of that so um this reminds me a little bit of um there's this british uh comedy troupe sort of pre monty python called beyond the fringe and at one point they said, the war's not going well. What we need right now is a futile gesture. Um, <laughs> and, um, but for the portion that is, in fact, internal to the university, there is a very easy solution. The university, every year, assigns amount of, an amount of money to the athletic department to spend. What the university should do next year is figure out how much the debt is, not the, the, the annual deficit, but the actual debt and should grow the school's budget by exactly that amount of mo- amount, that ex- exact amount. Um, it's a paper transaction. It, it merely authorizes them to spend more money. No cash actually transfers hands at that point. At that point, the university, the athletic department should turn around and ter- hand all of the money that the university says that it, is, it is owed to the university, paying off the debt in full. Boom, problem solved. And the reason that this sounds like it's uh, uh, like a, uh, a fairy tale is because the debt is a fairy tale. Um, there is no actual debt when your left pocket asks your right pocket for money. And as long as the athletic department is part of the university, that is just a fight among departments over, over which one of them gets credit for which money. External debt, completely different story. But, um, but if essentially what happened was that the school said we're only going to give you ten thousand dollars this year and the universe and the athletic department said well we want to spend 11 they said okay well you owe us that was that was very much like you and your your teen child fighting over how much he or she is going to pay in rent for living in his or her bedroom that you then pay by giving them an allowance you can raise the rent and you can raise the allowance and it doesn't change the household finances at all. Um, so I, I think that that's, from what I've heard, a chunk of it is of that nature where it's, it's a notional debt, but it's not a real debt. And uh, whether or not the, I mean, sure, if the athletic department were to become more profitable, that would inure to the benefit of the university as a whole, assuming that the athletic department didn't just blow it all. Um, so the, I'm not saying that the athletic department 
couldn't be used to generate more revenue. I'm just saying that there's zero need to do it if the debt is simply uh, an accounting fiction between two departments of the same entity. Uh, to, to, to wrap up this uh, lengthy conversation, I really appreciate all your time. Um, tell, tell my listeners about the project that you've been working on, the HBL, as, it, as you're trying to put into practice uh, the kind of theoretical things you've been discussing and working on as it relates to uh, athlete compensation and, and amateurism. Sure, thank you. So um, I and several other folks are in the process of forming something called the Historical Basketball League, the HBL. We're at hbleague.com. And our premise is that what makes college sports in general and college basketball in particular great is that it's college students playing high-level basketball. And I can say that whole sentence without once using the word amateurism because what we don't think what makes college basketball great or popular or in demand or, or generate ticket sales or TV viewing is the enforced um, underpayment of athletes, that, that the salary level or non-salary salary level of the athletes is not the draw. Um, so what we plan to do is starting on June 19th, 2020, some of your listeners may uh, want to look up why June 19th is a symbolic date, um, we are going to have a summer basketball league where all of the athletes in our league go, are full-time college students, but as their summer job, when it doesn't interfere with their classes, they're going to play in a 12 or 16-team basketball league that competes nationally. It's going to be on a screen near you, probably through streaming, and we're going to have a uh, national relationship with one of the major shoe and apparel companies. But the athletes are going to get paid a salary commensurate with what a high-end Silicon Valley summer job pays, and they're going to be able to commercialize their own images on YouTube and reap the rewards of that. They're going to be able to be full participants in the American capitalist economy, despite the fact that they are, during the year, college students. And we see this as the same as how kids who, I shouldn't say kids, but young adults who make apps while they're in college and, and commercialize those, young adults who uh, record music and post it online and make money, young adults who get a job working at a grocery store <laughs> over the summer and make money, that, that effectively this is going to be their summer job. All of the athletes are going to be full-time, not full-time, sorry, full employees in, in the legal sense of the HBL, not of the university. And um, we're going to effectively test whether or not it's college basketball that's popular or amateur basketball that's popular. And, and we think very much it's college basketball. And the good thing is because the schools that we're going to be competing against for talent and, in fact, recruiting from will be on, you know, maybe University of New Mexico campus if you've got a great freshman who'd like him to play his sophomore year in our league instead and we're willing to pay for it, is that our competitor won't really be able – to fight back. So we think that for investors, this is a great opportunity to, to acquire um, the talent that generates ACC basketball television revenues um, without the sort of crazy investment in coaches' salaries that the ACC schools have to go, and go to. Um, and we think that for consumers, this is going to be a great opportunity to watch tomorrow's NBA stars play tomorrow's NBA stars every single game of the season. Um, not just three weeks in March. So um, we'll see. 
Well, I I, uh, I wish you a tremendous amount of luck, Andy. I, I really appreciate all the time. I think it's very interesting. You uh, you might continue to uh, keep your tabs on New Mexico and see if if uh, your advice is further assimilated. Um, I, I certainly uh, think it's it's a, a worthy perspective to be had, and and I, I appreciate all the time. Thanks so much, and, and good luck. And I do, I do hope that whatever decision New Mexico makes, it's an economically rational one. Well, I, I, that's, a, that's a sweet thought. That's a sweet thought. <laughs> All righty, you take care. You too. Bye-bye. And so, there you have it. I'd again like to thank my guest, Andy Schwartz, for all of his time. You can learn more about the Historical Basketball League at hbleague.com, and you can find Andy's blog at sportsgeekonomics.tumblr.com. You can find an accompanying article to the podcast, which includes key excerpts and helpful links, at nmfishable.com, where you can find archives of all my Lobo-related content. As for the future of the podcast, I should note that I have extended invitations to UNM Athletic Director Eddie Nunez, and school president Garnett Stokes. Those invitations have so far gone completely ignored. Nonetheless, I'm excited that I have a number of interesting guests lined up for the coming weeks and months, and per popular request, I shall endeavor to eventually get this bad boy on iTunes. If you have any comments or questions for me, you can write to editor at nmfishbowl.com or find me on Twitter at nmfishbowl.com, all one word. The music you're hearing comes via Creative Commons from the Freak Fandango Orchestra and their song, Requiem for a Fish. I appreciate you listening, and until next time, because now we know there will be a next time, I'm Daniel Libet.